Hello! You're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. We're sometimes fortnightly, we're sometimes monthly. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? Doing okay. I'm recovering from a, a bit of a bout of illness, which is which is unpleasant. Um, I'm sorry but, to hear that. Uh, yeah, looking forward to steaming into 2022 with uh, with some new uh, new Arkham content. Let's just pretend I haven't already put an episode out and we'll never speak <laughs> about that episode again. And we can say that this is the start of the new year. So happy new year, listeners. I'm not going to say anything else about uh, 2022's first episode. But yeah, we're going to we're going to ease into the new year, aren't we? We've got a lot of questions from patrons to answer. So we thought we'd uh, a little bit like on Christmas Day tearing into that stocking, we're going to tear into the mailbag, open up the different questions and see where it takes us. That sounds great. Yeah. Let's 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 dig in. Have you got the mailbag or is it in, is it I got it. Unfortunately, it's a digital mailbag. Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> you have to click and drag with your mouse to okay, force right, the bag right. to tear open. Yeah, and just to remind listeners, if you're a patron and you're a patron on the Ravenous Ghoul, the Icy Ghoul, or the Ghoul Priest tiers, you're entitled to send in questions to us, and we'll answer them on the cast. We we try and save up a few so that we can do an episode like this, and I suppose it's the closest we get to patrons dictating the content we don't normally let patrons do that do we but yeah they kind of guide us to to some topics that maybe we've not talked about or things like that anyway that's how you send a question in if you want to so uh, what order are we going to do these in frank are you going to ask me or shall i ask you first i think you should ask me the first one because it's about think on your feet okay uh i'll actually haven't read the question then maybe not (laughs) first question is from matt and it says, given that seemingly everyone enjoyed the two-player Think on Your Feet, would you consider doing more of them from time to time? I imagine a full campaign, say a return to, would be quite a commitment, given that you'd have to do it on TTS. Other digital platforms are available, um, probably. But maybe a standalone <laughs> or two? Hmm, good question. Um, I love the seemingly everyone enjoyed the two-player Think on Your Feet. <laughs> little Little dig there, like seemingly everyone did. I'm pretty sure some people didn't. <laughs> this is a well i mean i i assume that he's alluding to the dream eaters that we did where we took it in turns to play which was still a solo think on your feet just yes. it just had two two voices we have done some playing together haven't we before on tabletop simulator yeah, although yeah quite a bit other digital pra- platforms do exist as well and streamed it so we're not averse to that the the thing i can't get over for doing two player think on your feet Well, there's two things. One is that we're at distance from each other. So it's not really us at the table with our cards. And I find that a bit hard to square away. And then the second thing for me is about hands and revealing what's in your hand or not. Yeah. And I, yeah, I just can't, um, I haven't found a way of making that work that would be, that would kind of be true to how we like to play the game which isn't fully revealing our hands although sometimes we might say oh well I've got an x or a y while also like letting the listener in to what we're doing what do you think about it yeah I tend to agree I think part of the the joy of think on your feet is really that that thinking out loud of your feet Mm. (laughs) yeah as you're looking at your cards and you're, you're really detailing the kind of plays you could do in, in in I guess quite an intimate way and, and potentially adding a second person into that maybe ruins the flow a little bit and it instantly becomes a lot more to track for anyone listening to it. So I don't know how yeah. well two player would come across. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's the equivalent of if we imagine the listener as a third person a second person for solo and a third person for two player at the table. Yeah. If I was sitting playing with you but I had someone next to me who I was explaining every play to yeah. I think you might end up either getting impatient or getting bored or saying, you know, what are you doing, Frank? Why are you talking through every line in so much detail? Maybe. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a may, this makes me think maybe we need to just, or maybe I need to think about completely new ways of doing it. Yeah. Rather than, rather than trying to do think on your feet to player. Yeah. Come up with a new thing 
because I think there is value to be had in in the interplay between us, right? And talking about, well, I, I can commit you a card if you want one, all of that sort of thing. That's some of the that's some of the stuff I enjoy the most about playing with other people is evaluating how difficult is this test, how vital is it to pass, what kind of a sacrifice is it if I give you this card that you don't know what it is. Yeah, that's the kind of where it gets juicy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Me, me telling you that you're not allowed to move to a location unless you can convince yeah. me it's the best move. Yeah, or uh, a recent play between us, I was very keen to throw dynamite <laughs> enemies. And you also happened to be at that location. We had quite a back and forth, didn't we? We did indeed, yeah. <laughs> your precious health versus my need to kill things. <laughs> Maybe there's a way of sharing that. There are people who play two-player out there. I check out some of their stuff. Maybe I should go and look a, look a bit more and see if I can draw some more inspiration from two-player people out there. I think I think one of the answers here is that people will say, just don't care about the table talk rules and be open about your hands. But yeah. I don't, I don't know, loses some of the magic for me. <laughs> and the scenarios become a lot longer is one of the other, the other problems. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. There's, um, there's maybe a bit less jeopardy in two-player. If if things are going well in two player, some scenarios feel like you just you crack on and get through them. You know, we're both set up. Maybe, maybe that's just I've had successful two player experiences recently <laughs> and not so express, successful solo experiences. Let's let's say we're not ruling it out, but we haven't worked it out yet. And move yeah, on. I mean, it certainly would be good to do some things like some more streaming this year. Yeah, and a patron goal incidentally for patrons and non-patrons alike if we hit a certain threshold it's on patreon that you can see we'll commit to to streaming arkham every month we just have to get to that point that makes it i suppose worthwhile for both of us and something that we can we know is worth committing to but it's something that we kind of want to commit to anyway so help us get there and we'll do it it'll be really cool we've got a name for what those sessions are going to be we've already got some (laughs) ideas of what we'd like to stream so if you like hearing us chatting here, wait until you see us playing. Okay, I'll move us on. Next is from Yussi Pekka. Would you like to see the patrol mechanic be used in future scenarios and what different patrol ways would you like to see? In Hotel Excelsior, the patrol location changed depending on the board state. Would you like to see more stable patrol routes like if at location X, move to location Y and vice versa? The patrol mechanic, I guess, is is, is a is a tool in, in a toolbox of enemy words, enemy keywords, um, mm-hmm. to, to give a certain feeling. My feel is that patrol is it can be quite easy to manipulate how the enemies work via patrol far more easily than say hunter. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly in in Excelsior, you can end up. It's like a bit like Scooby Doo, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You, you end up with with people running to and from rooms constantly back across the corridor. So it can be possible to manipulate them. But I guess maybe that's a problem with that scenario rather than with the patrol keyword as a whole. Mm -hmm. And when we think of patrol, not the keyword, just what a patrol looks like, we do think of, you know, a guard moving through a series of locations. So I I think that's what you see is alluding to, JP is alluding to at the end of this. It's like, wouldn't it be nice if there was, say, imagine in, in... uh, midnight masks if there were enemies that that did a full loop of the board yeah. and they just moved from river town to east town from east town to downtown and so on and you could then that be part of the players like okay that enemy is going to be here in two turns yeah so yeah. we need to move or i, I, really, I suppose i, I like yeah. that yeah to try and trying to time your movements and your your path around the board so you can mm-hmm. avoid enemies seems that that seems quite cool i like that Actually, what you've described feels like my memory of how second edition Arkham Horror, the board game, worked. Ah, okay, yeah. So enemies would they, they would they would trigger their movement in particular phases, and then mm-hmm. they'd move in a certain path when they got triggered. Mm-hmm. How much of that? You're a big fan of the Hitman games. Yeah, yeah, you could say that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a certain amount of that of like learning patrols and routes in that, right? Or it's not it's not as mechanical as that mostly. Well, or is I just I, I worry if I start talking about Hitman 
we'll be here for an hour <laughs> talking about why I like it because this really ties into why I like those games. That the levels seem very chaotic when you first start, with lots of lots of people doing different things and unpredictable. But as you start to peel back the logic of them and start to master them, that the, the clockwork of the level design becomes obvious, and your ability to manipulate the enemies. Or, or, well, the NPCs rather than the enemies. You, you become more, what's the word I'm looking for? More competent at that, mm. on on that particular level anyway. You know, I do this, that means this person's going to do this, which leaves me a window to do that. Mm-hmm. There, there is an Arkham-related thing here. You suggested with Patrol that at its heart, it's actually quite easy to manipulate. And mm-hmm. that maybe that wasn't that great a thing then, in practice. Yeah. Whereas... I'm wondering if it makes you feel good in Hitman if you're able to manipulate those things. I'm wondering what the difference is. I think like what you want is a is an element of verisimilitude in, in how the enemies are reacting. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you know we're, we're at quite a high level of, of abstraction in Arkham, I do think like a predetermined path where an enemy moves between particular locations, moves from location one to two to three to four, whatever, mm-hmm. that probably works a bit better just within the fiction of the, of the game than it does how they work in Excelsior. In Excelsior, mm-hmm. they, they do they patrol towards locations with the most clues? Is that how it works? The police do that, and then the, the guests go to crime scenes. That's right, yes. And then hotel guests generate doom when they're at crime scenes because it's sort of them gossiping and causing trouble and I what I get from it is their idle chatter is disrupting the crime scene and, and speeding things along, getting in your way, all of that kind of thing. Yeah. But you can end with the, with a situation where you've got like three cops all standing on top of each other, running up the stairs, yeah. then running back down the stairs, then running back up the stairs again. And the the hilarious thing as well of if there are no clues the police just mill around they don't know where to go yeah yeah which weirdly is is accurate but (laughs) but also yeah and we didn't really answer the first bit of this question would we like to see the patrol mechanic be used in future scenarios for me yes of course i like there's a we've now got three ways enemies move hunter patrol and warring Mm. and i think both patrol and warring we've only seen very briefly and it would be great to see them in more detail the other thing I'd add is there's a there's a uh, Mansions of Madness second edition scenario that's I think it's the Innsmouth one and it has the Innsmouth mob patrolling and the Innsmouth mob is just too large to fight. I mean I, I imagine there are players who have beaten it, but it certainly early on in a Mansions of Madness scenario it just seems completely gigantic and terrifying. And learning its route and realizing it's on a set path and then knowing you can actually just avoid it is quite enjoyable when it first appears out of sort of a side street. Because you know in Mansion 2nd Edition, you don't set up the entire board. Yeah. So the game knows there's more board out there, but you don't. So suddenly the, the, this mob arrives. So I think in Arkham, it, it, if there was an enemy that was actually sort of too large to handle easily, but the it was on rails and, and safe to avoid, that could be maybe interesting. Or maybe it would actually... As I say out loud, I'm thinking maybe it wouldn't be that fun because you just avoid it. It would punish you for failing to avoid it, <laughs> but otherwise be, yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's something there. Shall we move yeah. on? Yeah, yeah, let's move on. Let's move on. I think I could talk about that subject at some length, actually, but but let's let's move on because we've got a lot of other questions to get through. We could do an enemy movement episode. Yeah. Down the line. Saxon says... Would a revised core follow a model similar to Marvel, where a full card set is offered? <laughs> Great question. Should be yes, an easy one would. to answer. <laughs> yeah. And apologies for this this uh, question slipped through the mailbag, and we should have answered it a little while ago. Yes, it would. I don't. I mean, rewinding. There wasn't much debate. I think once we knew about the revised core, about whether or not it would have a full card set, because we seemed. What with knowing about Edge of the Earth and how that was going to be all the cards at once, it seems like they're moving towards this model of single boxes rather than a pack a month. Yes, yes. I think it it would have seemed, I don't know, I'm not a, not a market researcher, but for everyone I know who's into card games, they'd far rather pay 
twice as much for a full set than have to hunt down individual cores. And it just feels very bad to have spent the money buying the game and then be told, ah, great, well, you've got half of what you need. <laughs> yeah. Just seems like a really off-putting thing for a new player to hear. How, and how many, think about any board game on your shelf. Like, there are so few, well, none I can think of that do that. Yeah. <laughs> well done. But, you know, and it's, yeah, my heart sinks a bit if someone says, the game is great, but you need to buy whatever this game is. You need to buy expansions A, B, and C before it really comes to life. Mm, that's a shame. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Should we move on? Yes. A Cockgreave asks, have you ever thought about an episode focusing on player types? Something slightly different to the one you did a few years ago, which incidentally was on the types of players who attend events. One thing most Arkham content focuses on is whether cards are good in terms of efficiency. There's less focus on whether a card is good for the developing narrative opportunities. I'm prompted because someone just slated Sled Dog on Arkham DB. And they may be inefficient, but it's a pack of four sled dogs. For some people, the joy of that is a price worth paying. Hmm. So is the question, have we ever thought about it? Yes, I think we probably have thought about it. <laughs> Next <Yeah>. question. <laughs> I knew you'd do that. I'm very pleased you did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess this it's, it's an interesting topic, right? Mm-hmm. Just for a bit of background, there's, there's, a, there's a very widely shared in card gaming circles concept of player types related to magic Mm -hmm. and they are timmy spike and johnny and then vorthos and something else i can't remember what the other one's called yeah and survivor (laughs) (laughs) it's vorthos or mel are the other two okay i've just looked that up but yeah they're a way of much like when we design an event, the way uh, the, the reason we came up with those uh, event player types, what did we call them, Frank? Do we have a name for them? I can't remember now. No, don't think so. Leo, Daisy and Calvin. Yeah. The reason we came up with them was so that when we designed events, we could think about those players and made sure they were all happy with an element of the event. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the origin of the player types... Uh, for the for the magic design team was again making sure that those types of player were happy with the cards that were coming out in a particular set. So not every card was like a hyper balanced tournament card, because not everyone's playing from that point of view. You might have someone l- exactly like a Cockgreave suggests. You might have someone mm-hmm. who loves dogs, yeah, and just wants to build a big dog deck or a, a, some deck which. Spends forever setting up and then runs an infinite combo or is able to play a massive, massive um, uh, ally asset. So like agency backup or something like that. Mm-hmm. They just find stuff with big numbers on it. Cool. So you want to make sure yeah. you're catering to all those different players when you, when you put them together. Mm-hmm. So I guess that sort of says, why would we do it? Because we're not writing, uh, writing scenarios or, or designing cards. Mm. I think it's in, it'll be interesting to speculate on and i think passively we have been doing it a little bit i'm thinking of when do you remember lucky penny in innsmouth and i remember you saying and actually gesh as well you saying there's a there's a rogue player out there who will go wild for this sort of thing or a type of player out there who loves the idea that they take an entire mechanic bless and curse and just turn it into a coin flip because they don't care and Behind that, obviously, that's suggesting that that type of player is not the same as the player who just wants efficiency or who just wants to tell a good story. There's maybe you're in a way you're tearing up the story if you're saying, "Well, I don't really care what the blessing curse do. I wanna, I wanna gamble." Or, or maybe it's narratively that the the rogue player is just gritting their teeth and sort of laughing through the foibles of the chaos bag. I think maybe we we have a sense of them behind the scenes, as I imagine many players do. We just don't verbalise it and name it. And we keep an eye out for cards that we think are cool or interesting. The proper sense of interesting, not the drawn to the flame sense of interesting. But we so often are, I think our card reviewing comes back down to, will this card help you win the game? I think that's our 
our default, isn't it? I don't know whether it is. I think maybe this goes back to the interview series we did recently. Mm-hmm. The second looks. The second looks, indeed. Which really aimed to get a different perspective on the cards mm-hmm. from the various content creators we had on. Uh, and, and hopefully we were successful there, where what we were looking at was what does the person we have on enjoy about the cards that we're looking at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I say enjoy, I mean makes them fun to play. Yeah. And maybe that's, that's the angle we take on this. You know, if the more people, that the, the, the better the diversity of people we have reviewing cards the more we understand why people might like playing particular cards. Am I making any sense at all? Yeah, you are, you are, you are. I'm nodding, I'm nodding sagely yeah. over here. So, so yeah, I, we can't necessarily say what might be fun. We can speculate what might be fun about cards that, that, that we review. But really, it's nice to get someone on who does find that fun mm. and explain yeah. why they find it fun and why they, when they look at a new card... What is it about that card which makes them want to build a deck around it? And the thing I'd add to that, actually, you've got me excited here, Peter, is that (laughs) sometimes the power level of a card is inversely proportional to how enjoyable the card is, weirdly. Yeah. It's not always that the more efficient a card is, the more powerful a card is, the better it is. Some cards, by their very nature of being so powerful, have in some portions of the community, not universally, led to frustration, led to disappointment. I don't like playing this card. It makes the game too easy or, or whatever it is. So that, again, to me, hints that there's another player out there who, I don't know, there's, there's like questions of fairness or balance in there mm. or they want they want the game to be hard enough for them. Yeah. Which I think is, is really intriguing because you can also go and look online and people say this game's really hard. So <laughs> it's... Um, yeah, difficulties in there, fairness. It's all, yeah, it's yeah. It, it calls to mind one of my one of the great sadnesses. I think is that the taboo list ended up banning double or nothing. Mm. Um, for or now, for, forbidding it for now. Yeah, but I can't see that card coming back in at any point. Mm-hmm. Just because, well, it, it, there's an interesting tension there because the logic is set out very well by MJ. Uh, on on one of the the blogs on the FFG site, mm-hmm. and it makes a lot of sense uh, what she says, but it's it's such a fun card to play with, mm-hmm. and it's almost by accident that it's ended it ended up so potent because mm-hmm. I think a lot of newer players would really enjoy the effects of it, the risk and the reward, and figuring out when you want to put it into a test or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's a really fun card to play with. It's just sad that it's also an incredibly powerful card and that had walked the game around it. And there were two groups out there. They weren't exactly distinct, but they were definitely there. There were lots of players who liked playing Double or Nothing and weren't doing anything wild with it. It was just a, a fun card that came with a certain amount of risk as well, finding the right test for it. But then there were also players out there who knew that they could turn it towards really really explosive effects I, I know the word the word floating around here is degenerate effects but i don't <laughs> yeah. i don't think i actually want to add that there because i'm not i'm not sure if it is necessarily degenerate or just just huge and and that's part of the nature of the card as well if you double all of your success triggers with double or nothing and guarantee success that's explosive that's huge so i think maybe part of what's fascinating about the forbidding of it is that both groups get hit. Yeah. Again, groups in the vaguest sense, because it's it's much more amorphous than that. I wonder if there could be a, a mutation for double or nothing that says, if this test succeeds, double, one. double the success of one success yeah. trigger, or, you know, obviously the wording would need to, or for each point you succeed by, well, uh, that still gets crazy, bro. Well, yeah, 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 but also you could maybe limit how many cards could be committed to the test. So yeah, each yeah. each player can commit one of the card or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, There's right, we, we, we have yeah. we have strayed quite a quite a long way from from Acockree's original question. This suggests to me that there's scope for us to talk about this. So, oh, damn it, we've confirmed 
we've confirmed his But we had thought about it already. <laughs> we so. had thought about it already. <laughs> yeah, great question. Thank you very much. Bro, we've got a couple of questions from Andy B. First up, we've now got some 50-odd different investigators. So what would your favourite from the core set be? Are there any that have stood the test of time particularly well or particularly badly? Ooh. Should we do quick fire here? Yeah, this is always a hot topic as well because someone is going to be upset when we uh, slate or reward their their favourites. What we should do is we should guess who the other person's favourite is from the corset. <laughs> Your favourite from the corset. I mean, there's three contenders here for you. Yes. I think I think it has to be Agnes Baker. For yes, you. 100%. Yeah. Yes. I think she's, she's remained powerful as well, right? Yeah. Daisy and Skids were the runners-up there, yeah, I absolutely. would say. You, you, you absolutely hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. You're much more of a mystery. Um I don't know yeah. what, which way. Which I don't way know if I know. Go. So yeah, it depends on which way the wind is blowing. You're much more uh, faction agnostic as well. Yeah, I do joke with people who've met me at events that you're always allowed to ask me what my favourite investigator will be, and I'll always try and give you a different answer, which is really useful. <laughs> that there are so many, so many um, investigators. Funnily enough, I think if I had to, if I had to settle on one to play with right now, it would be Agnes as well. But I have, you know, what's weird as well about the core set that they only released four investigators, and then yeah. in every following set they've done five, five or six. Yeah, it's strange. But I, interestingly, I don't think any of those core set investigators have really. Uh, none of them have, have turned out. Often, I think early in the development of an LCG like this, or any, I guess, any card game. It's sort of harder to judge unless you've got a brain inside the planet how powerful cards are going to be. We look at, there's quite a few cards like Machete and Milan in the yeah. core set, which uh, quite quickly established themselves as being ahead of the power curve in terms of efficiency. Yeah. Uh, and they've both been tackled in, in various ways. Well, and other cards like Shriveling, Lucky, Ward of Protection, that we still see in lots of decks. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think there's a difference between a staple, a baseline staple, like water protection or um, what were the other ones you mentioned? Lucky and... Shriveling. Yeah, yeah. shriveling. I think that they're, they're a nice baseline for cards, but you can obviously see that Machete was crowding out other choices. Yeah. yeah. And, and Milan's obviously just, just an amazing ally. <laughs> it's like just ridiculously good. Yeah. But yeah, but I don't think any of the core set investigators themselves have have really fallen into that that trap and i think you know the flip side is you can build good decks in them all as well i know mm. um poor skids probably gets the worst rep of everyone in the core set yeah yeah but i i think there's there's plenty of good decks plenty of thematic decks plenty of, of legit good decks you can build with with skids I think the, mm -hmm. the problem skids might have is that he's he overlaps a bit with finn finn yeah. has like slightly slightly tweaked stats from yeah. skids that probably make him a little bit better and he gets a Finn gets it like a he gets a free action to evade skids has to pay for his free action which can often be used to evade I would guess yeah, yeah. so yeah maybe he suffers a little bit from that comparison but then again you know skids gets access to to guardian cards which is something that Finn doesn't do mm-hmm I mean, I think you're actually neatly answering are there any that have stood the test of time particularly well or badly? Mm. And I don't think Skids has, Skids has not stood the test of time, but consistently he's had to fight for his place and justify his place in a team. And yeah. I think players who take the time to get good at playing Skids realise that he's incredibly potent and can do lots of different things. But it's hard once you have a bit of a bad rap yeah. You know, like, look at the development of the game. The next rogue was Jenny, and everyone was like, wow, flat stat line and loads of resources. This is great. And then Finn. So it was like, oh, then Seth, then Finn. So, <laughs> like, there's a pretty, pretty tough three to compete against, even out of the gate. Yeah. And I think the other thing to add, of course, is there's the parallel corset investigators now. It's encouraged people to revisit them and you can play with with their 
front abilities intact but with different different deck building or you can play with the same deck building and a different front ability or you can play changing both so what i think is great about that is it didn't feel like they were those were necessary the parallels it just felt like a nice add-on and if it had felt like we really needed parallel corset investigators because all of the corset investigators had faded to obscurity that would be a shame but i don't I don't think they have. I'd say as well that Wendy has definitely stood the test of time particularly well. Daisy has stood the test of time particularly well. Like Daisy, is, for so many people, is still a go-to seeker for like face-checking a campaign because of that five intellect, the action efficiency with her tomes, access to Mystic. Glorious. Yeah, yeah. We've done it. We've got through only talking about four of the five. <laughs> good effort. Okay. Do you want to do the next one from yeah. Mandy So he says, I thought of a question last night while playing Amanda. Are there some investigators where you need to bump the difficulty up for the campaign? I re- recently thought it in return to the Forgotten Age with Trish, and again last night with Amanda, that perhaps I need to move from standard to hard for them, whereas I'm less sure about that for most others. And Lola is definitely staying on standard. Oh, we'll get to V, right? Because an angry letter when people say things like that. Mm, yeah. Lola is more... <laughs> she just she just needs you to be more refined. Yeah, she's harder to pilot. Not all investigators are the same difficulty to well, pilot. So. Okay, right. So, so <laughs> can, I, can I use an analogy from a totally different game? Yeah, please. Blood Bowl. Yeah. It's well established that not all teams are created equal in Blood Bowl, right? Yeah. That yeah. absolutely doesn't mean you can't win with any team in Blood Bowl. That there's, it's just that. And I think in certainly in some editions of the game, particular teams were flagged up as being for more experienced players. Mm, okay. And it, it, it feels like it makes sense within the fiction of the game as well. So mm. a team of halflings <laughs> going <laughs> up against like some Blackhawks you, you definitely yeah. feel in the fiction of the game you're going to be you're going to be outgunned <laughs> yeah outmuscled <laughs> yeah um but still it, it can be a very rewarding experience to take a team like that and play it um mm-hmm. just either as a tactical challenge to yourself to, to to do well with the team which maybe feels like it has more disadvantages or just for, for fun, because they play in a fun way, or they do unexpected things, or they're more variable, so they sometimes they spike really high. There's all sorts of reasons why you, why you might want to do that. Just a love of the faction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to an extent, I, I don't know whether that transfers across to Arkham, whether there's it like a... It does. Maxine's said as much to me. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it isn't nice to feel when you're playing in a team that someone in the team is far more powerful than everyone else mm, uh, or, or yeah. you're, you're you're like a wet noodle compared to everyone else mm-hmm. but it does feel like different investigators potentially have different base power levels like that mm. well let's look at for for example we're playing two player through edge of the earth at the moment you're playing monterey jack i'm playing lily chen mm-hmm. i often find it's it's fascinating to me that when you play when one plays as a guardian, it could be the go-to power fantasy, you're gonna kill everything. But in reality, it's not the power fantasy. It's the seeker that has the power fantasy because they're doing everything. And the guardian mm. is twiddling their thumbs and then doing small amounts of dealing with enemies. And particularly if you have an efficient seeker, you see very few enemies because you get through a scenario quickly. So you never feel like you're really threatened by enemies. So the guardian feels even less empowered. And, you know, sometimes I'm sitting opposite your Jack that can do everything, thinking, wow, Lily is no way as good as Jack. Mm. I, I, you know, or you know, by extension, I am not as good a player as Peter. I need to get better at this game, which I then say to myself, no, 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 this is silly. Like when enemies come up, they're gone in seconds. I have multiple ways of dealing with them. I have a, a few ways of getting clues, but that's not my role. And sort of fall back on roles as a way of feeling okay about <laughs> being less powerful than you in the game. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that's a problem. I think that's part of the experience of playing Arkham. And, you know, another example, I was playing opposite someone piloting Mandy recently, 
when Mandy has her mega turns and she does everything and, and, you know, hits a clue that she has no right to hit because she searched her own deck and then searches her deck again, which allows her to teleport across the map and all of this stuff. I just sit back and enjoy that then. Like, yeah, my investigator can't do that. I may as well just be here for the ride. I think that's okay. Anyway, we've strayed way off the difficulty question. So I think the other the other thing here is that some investigators just click with certain players and that's fine. Like it's there, it's a style that they enjoy. So for instance, I really love playing Silas. I have loved him from the first time I played him. I thought he'd be harder to play than he is. He's great. His stat line looks like it wouldn't be good at solo, but it's great at solo. And definitely I feel very confident playing Silas and I should probably play on hard as Silas uh, or even expert you know and find there's probably ways that he could do fine with that so I think that's if you feel like you're playing a powerful investigator and you want more of a challenge absolutely turn up the difficulty if you're not sure about cranking all the way up to hard just turn the um, scenario reference card over and play Mm. on standard plus uh, this also ties into a conversation I had with a with a good friend of mine about mm. being successful in games as well. So it's probably mm. worthy of its own entire separate conversation. But we were talking about uh, it, it's my my friend bought me Monster Train for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is a, a a a sort of rogue like deck builder, I guess. Yeah, it's like Slay the Spire. It's like the thought about Slay the Spire. Yeah, you 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 build a deck. It's it feels. Plays quite similar to something like Hearthstone, I, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, in even the look of it, feels quite Hearthstone, but it's more, more like a roguelike than Hearthstone. Well, Hearthstone isn't like a roguelike, but it's mm-hmm. like Hearthstone but a roguelike. Anyway, it's structured in a way that by the end of a run, you can be incredibly overpowered in the combinations of cards in your deck. Mm-hmm. More so, I think, than Slay the Spire. But I, I'm not ex- that experienced with Slayer's Fire. You can have like cards which which you can duplicate cards cards in your deck, even if you've already built a card that's incredibly powerful. You know, you get an option to duplicate it. You've got two of those now. So it it, it it's a game that is fine with you being ludicrously ludicrously overpowered by the end of a run mm. because that you know that deck's finished at that point and it's gone, and all of your overpowered combos then don't apply anymore. Um, and it's it's a game that's happy for you to feel incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's a bit of tension, isn't there, with Arkham Horror? Yeah. About whether you're allowed, in air quotes, to be really powerful. Yes. This is where I was kind of going. Yeah. Someone recently posted on a Discord server that they have played every campaign up to Innsmouth on standard, and they've reached the point where they're feeling like it's not challenging them. And their question was. Should for my first play of Innsmouth, I play it on hard? I answered saying, I think playing any campaign for the first time on hard would be quite a challenge. Mm-hmm. But it's also like what's behind their question there. What they're really yearning for is that feeling of, and we explored it a bit, of them clutching victory from the jaws of defeat. Yeah. That's what they. That's what gives them the satisfaction of playing. So yeah, maybe they do need to look at like turning up the difficulty, I think, would be be my response should we move on let's do it okay the next question is from chaos fan and it says not a question oh fine we'll skip that one then uh no i i am of course joking (laughs) not a question but in general i'm in the eagerly awaiting more investigator specific episodes camp for your listeners also i enjoy podcasts where you construct an actual deck and talk through the decision points coming up but especially like one where a standalone deck is being built. I have a really hard time with this when I can suddenly uh, when, I, when I suddenly can do XP cards, just in case you run out of stuff to do in your episodes. Hmm. Okay. So so just to reassure Chaos Fan, we are never gonna run out of stuff to do in our episodes. <laughs> I think we've probably said this a few times over the course of this, but I was concerned when we started this podcast, checks notes, what, two hundred and thirty episodes ago? Yeah, and five years. Yeah, that, that we'd swiftly... There wouldn't be enough to talk about <laughs> on a regular co-op card game podcast. Yeah, 
that's why we're sometimes monthly. Just slow things down, <laughs> exactly. go into a kind of hibernating state. <laughs> but stuff stuff pops up. At, it's it's quite surprising how much stuff pops up. Uh, and if we had all the time in the world, I think we could we could record an episode at least every week. Potentially yeah. two episodes every week. I think there's there's enough to talk about. Mm-hmm. It's the only way we'd get through all of the investigative specific episodes, right? <laughs> Flash cut. It's 2055. <laughs> <laughs> We're both still trying to record investigative specific episodes. Frank yeah. just won't let me die until <laughs> Cotton Wall <laughs> recorded. <laughs> Peter on his deathbed and I arrive with a dictaphone. <laughs> Gosh, bleak vision. Yeah. Maybe it's not bleak. Maybe you're like in a mansion. You're surrounded by all your awards, whatever else it is. Yes, yeah. oh, I'm, I'm just kept alive, rea- animated by the by the by Frank's will to get them all recorded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we um, deck building episodes specifically. Well, it, we've done a couple of those, haven't we? Yeah, my my criticism of them is that we end up essentially working card by card through every card in the card pool. Does mm-hmm. this card run deck run machete? No. Does it run 45 automatic? No. Does it run enchanted blade? Oh yeah, it could run enchanted, you know. And I I think that as content to listen to is not too interesting. That would be my my concern or my criticism of that. If we could find a way of doing it, the bit I I am interested in normally is picking your brain about like big picture your concept of how a deck is going to work. And how specific cards act in service to that thing. And then once you've got that core engine, how you decide what fits in around that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what gets me interested. And I think it's fair to say you were interested in my thing about, you know, if you're building a solo deck, what are your six to eight cards that do each of the things you need to do? And sort of chopping the deck up in that way. And why? And how do those also interact with your ability or your focus for the deck? My feel would be that it would be far more interesting to listen to an episode like that if there mm-hmm. was a, a a particular creative limitation on what cards you could put in your deck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and actually, yeah. it, it, what has just sprung to mind is what might be an interesting episode is deck building in the limited card pool on that for the format. campaign play along. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that that Veronica's running. That would be really nice, actually. Maybe yeah. we should sit down and do that when the next one's about to start. Yeah. Yeah. No, that could be really good fun. My jump to standalone is that for standalone deck building, I do the XP first, pretty much always now. And now, broadly speaking, when I'm even not playing standalone, the first thing I think about is what XP I want. Yeah, interestingly... I don't settle on it, it's not locked in. Yeah, standalone really allows you to to build around an idea involving XP cards right from the Mm -hmm. get-go, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You don't have to kind of build the scaffolding in place to get you to where you can put those XP cards in. You can be straight away, well, I know I want these allies, so I need charisma, and then I just put put everything together straight away. Mm, yeah. Okay, should yeah. we move on to the next question? Yeah. How about, so Chaos Fan also asks, how about a series with patrons? Like a patron with a question or deck building problem or whatever gets invited on the cast and then there's a deck building, investigate specific question answering whatever episode with that patron guest. I'd call the series Mother's Embrace. <laughs> Was this an extended way of, of just dropping in, in that they want to call the episodes Mother's Embrace? <laughs> Maybe, yeah, yeah. We, we have, we did do at some point in the past a a deck review episode. Mm-hmm. It was something we used to offer, but it was really it- hard. <laughs> I do appreciate the question, but it, it, it feels like it's probably something that doesn't quite chime with like how we like to do episodes. Mm-hmm. That said... Well, I mean, we've just done the second looks. <laughs> well, yeah. the guests were patrons. True, true, yes. But they, they weren't invited on because they were patrons. They were invited on no, true, because they were true. content creators yeah. of, of various stripes. Yeah, I, my gut feel with that, it, it's we probably work best when we're we're focusing on the kind of content we want to produce. Yeah. That's what five years and 230 episodes has has kind of driven us to. We Mm. need our enthusiasm to to work on an episode. However, uh, what we've got coming up soon actually is is a 
is a point, an episode based on a point a patron raised and mm. then sent us the email about. Yeah. Because it happened to be on, on a topic we were interested in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think there's there's a kind of, yeah, it's 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 like a if, if it's something we're interested in, there's, you know, potentially p- p- patrons might be able to get involved. Mm. I'd add just a couple of small things. One, if, the, say, we gate it to a certain tier, we're then committing to providing that as a thing that everyone at that tier gets. So that one concern for me would be we'd be entering into a series of however many tens of episodes. And even if the individual might be interesting, the challenge is then for the broader listeners, they're going to be committing to listening to, say, 30 episodes of Patron Arrives, they have a question, we answer it. (laughs) Um, That would be one thing. The second thing is actually a really mundane thing, technology. And making sure, you know, one of the challenges of doing the second looks was liaising with six different guests that they had a way of recording themselves, that they had a suitable microphone, and that they had a way of getting me the file. And then editing more voices than two does take more time. So then there was also like the editing component. So there's sort of, yeah, practical things that make it a bit more complicated. It's not insurmountable, but it's uh, particularly when we've both been busy. There's just a, a lot more resistance there, a lot more hurdles for us to get over. That's a, I guess, as a polite no as we can. Well, offer. yeah, <laughs> yeah, but, I, but I, not a never say never. No, no, exactly, and and, and I, I hope we've made our, our reasoning clear that that the the thing that really drives us to do what we do and, and to produce content we're proud of is is you know our our creative process between the two of us of how we come up with the episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, we have a couple of questions from Prinny. When will we have a Roland Banks investigator episode? Next question. <laughs> yeah, who's that? <laughs> the, <laughs> the investigator episodes are they're a great way a great way for us to break up other types of content that we're doing mm-hmm. because it's 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 a it's a kind of a very familiar structure to us. Mm-hmm. And we tend to go back to those just sort of whenever we feel that we haven't done one for a while. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then we pick an investigator we can both, or at least one of us, can speak passionately about mm-hmm. with an eye towards sort of keeping the, the factions balanced as well. Mm-hmm. So there's not yeah. there's not really a scientific method for how we pick which investigator we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. It's just... This is this is the one we've got something to say about at the moment. Strikingly, in the previous release model, we try and wait until at least some of the cycle was out, yeah. so that we could see some of the cards that might have been designed with that investigator from that deluxe in mind. Obviously, that doesn't matter anymore. You know, if we want to do a Lily or Jack episode, we probably can because we've seen all the cards that are going to come out in Edge of the Earth now. Yeah. So that's a possibility. There's a practical challenge of Roland now that there's Roland, parallel Roland with five directives, novella Roland <laughs> with different signatures. It's quite a lot of Roland to work through, but mainly we just like the joke that we've never heard of Roland and that he's a newfangled investigator. It would be a shame to miss out on that. Out of curiosity, do either of you have any crush cards? That is, cards you know may not be optimal, but you love to include in any decks that can take them. A non-Arkham example might be taking Battering Ram in every Netrunner deck you make because you like the big beefy Fractor that keeps its strength during a run. Right, Peter, I'm going to guess your crush cards. Then well, hang on, just mine. before we go, can I can I just say Battering Ram is one of those cards where it seems absolutely terrible until someone plays it against you at the exact wrong moment and you're like, it can't, <laughs> it can't work like that. keeps the strength yeah. for the whole run. Your tower of barriers, just, <laughs> yeah, just a handful of credits, and they're in. <laughs> Sorry, go on. Get get guess some of my crush cards. Thermos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to an extent, yes. I still, I haven't, I haven't used it. I put it in my deck this campaign in Edge of the Earth because yeah. I Keep took in the deck of it, it, and I haven't <laughs> used it once. I think I've, I've played it once, and I played haven't it used once it at all. Kind of yeah, yeah. And you keep the best part. Playing opposite Peter Listener is that he goes, oh, 
I just need one more resource so I can play this thermos. Like, Why? Like, don't worry, spend... I, I can heal you. I've got a card in my hand that can heal, so don't worry. Yeah, about yeah, <laughs> number of times. And then I'm just slapping down a hallowed mirror and doing all the healing and thinking, why Why were we waiting for this thermos? The thermos that never comes. That is definitely a crush card for you. What, what else for Peter? Fieldwork. Oh, field, but that's a good card, though. So. Well, yeah, but the question wasn't what cards are bad <laughs> you take. No, those <laughs> cards you know may not be optimal. <laughs> yeah, I, I, Fieldwork's a great card, especially yeah. in, in decks that actually like it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess we could rejig Prinny's question and say, what are cards you include in your deck almost without thinking and don't pause to check whether or not they're actually needed in that deck? Um, although fieldwork is definitely needed in your jack deck, it does a lot of work. What about for me? Oh, I, do, <laughs> I opened up the Daniela deck and I also had Thermos in it. <laughs> <laughs> I like Meat Cleaver as well. It's just a really satisfying card to have in a deck. What about you, Frank? I don't know. There are some. Hang on, let me think. Oh, Eureka. say your prayers. <laughs> say your prayers. Say yeah. your prayers, Eureka. Yeah. That's another one. A one off say your prayers for anyone with low sanity. Absolutely, yeah. There's a couple more. I'm trying to think decks you sent me recently. You're a big... I mean, it's a good card, but deny the existence. Deny existence you'll take in, in pretty much anyone who can take it. Yeah. It's, it's sort of Ward of Protection 3 yeah. and 4 in my head. Yeah. For a while, I was wild about Premonition, but I've sort of gone off Premonition a bit. It used to be in every Mystic deck I made, but I found... Yeah, I found I wasn't taking it as much. What else? Just thinking through different factions here. Intel reports in Rogue. I mean, that's just a really good card, though. But <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that all the cards we think that we want to include all the time are really good cards, isn't it, Frank? Yeah, it's weird. It's... Eureka is the one I'd say where I'll have put it in the deck. I won't even like see its name in the deck. It's just a given that it's in there, and then realize like, oh, hang on. Like, does this deck actually need Eureka? You know, particularly if you've put Eureka in an investigator who's maybe only testing one of those three stats, like maybe they're using the intellect but not the other ones. Mm. Think, okay, hang on. Okay, that's a lovely question. Thank you. This is a question from Dai. Let's imagine that you had to design a sixth class for Arkham Horror. What would that look like for you? What kind of role, cards, unique identity, investigators, release model, etc. would you like to see? Oh, I mean, Dai's given us a question there, which is essentially a whole episode's worth of content. Yeah, yeah. Are we able to answer that in the kind of less than five minutes required <laughs> to fill the rest of this episode? Let's imagine you had to. I'm going to do a bit of a cop-out and say that there is someone out there who has designed a sixth class for Arkham mm -hmm. Horror, and it was really interesting looking at what they had designed. And what I found particularly intriguing about that was actually looking at what it said about their understanding of the game. And this really leads neatly on to another episode we'd like to do, which is about the colour pie in Arkham as it pertains to Arkham and what, what each faction is and isn't allowed to do, I suppose. Yeah. And I almost feel like if we were to design a sixth class, I'd almost want it to be designed, and this might enrage some listeners, along flavour grounds more than anything else. Because it feels at the moment like classes can more or less do everything. And I don't want to stray too much into our material for colour pie. But what if there was a class that was, say, I don't know, I was, I was, the two things that have come to my mind are like redeemed cultists, but of course we have one in Mystic, and sort of um, mobsters and dodgy people, but that's rogue. <laughs> so I don't know if there's any, any scope there for for that i'm floundering a bit here peter what about you what what kind of role do you see yeah difficult one i guess maybe you take the approach if you look at any investigators who are left that haven't been released in the game and see <laughs> if they fit anywhere in the existing kind of class structure charlie kane's a great example who's a who's a politician right mm -hmm. but I don't think he really fits in the established class structure easily. Yeah. You could probably make yeah. an argument for him in several places. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I suppose similarly, George Barnaby. The lawyer. The lawyer. Yeah. Again, it's pretty seeker but is it, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, because yeah. seeker, seeker implies like a, like a search for the truth or something. And I, mm. I don't think that matches up with George's backstory, I don't think. No, no, he's almost... He's almost a sort of guardian in the way that Carolyn is a guardian, isn't he? Exactly, um, yeah, yeah. And that kind of role doesn't... Vincent Lee's another one as well, isn't he? Doctor, yeah. He's a doctor. Yeah. Again, you know, there's a lot of kind of first aid and, and healing cards that exist in, mm. in Guardian. But then, you know, the rest of the Guardian card pool doesn't quite match up with that. Mm. And you end up with these strange restrictions, like with Carolyn, no weapons. Yeah, yeah, one yeah. One to five. It's sort of like, you are a guardian, but don't take any of these cards and best of luck. So there's almost like a, yeah, I, almost like a kind of a, a, a word warrior, <laughs> a silver tongue class. Yeah. Which, which I think is the, the angle that video you, you suggested or you mentioned mm. that that's the kind yeah. of the angle that took as well, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a fascinating angle and includes things like talking humanoid monsters around to working for you. And things like that. Yeah. So it's a really about not the card charisma, but having charisma and being able to smooth talk your way. That Where it's tricky for me is that we do have cards like Persuasion and Interrogate, which are cards that directly um, interact with enemies in non-combat ways. And we do have Rogues that are very slippery and are able to move away from enemies and quite enjoy having enemies around. Yeah. So it sort of all falls into that part i guess i think thinking about roles is a good one though are there other elements of society that aren't represented in the game it's tri- tricky to and, and distribution model is an interesting one as well like, like you've yeah. suggested we've got a lot of cards already that cover a multitude of theming angles so mm-hmm. how how easy would it be to fit uh, another class amongst those i know netrunner which we just talked about um, a few minutes ago very briefly they did a, a kind of mini factions, right? There was three additional character cards who who, who came out who, who had a kind of subset, a very small set of cards associated with them that only they could use, or well, other factions could use by spending the influence on them, mm-hmm. which is a, a pretty vital resource in, in your deck building. And Call of Cthulhu, the card game, started with seven factions and added an eighth, yeah, which was Silver Twilight which is part of where I was going to with the sort of whole cultist side of things. And other other LCGs have done that. What's the Conquest, Warhammer Conquest? One of their releases was the... Uh, the Necrons and Necrons the Tyranids. Necrons and the Tyranids, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's definitely been done before. It It sort of works, doesn't it, with that deluxe model, release model, <laughs> but deluxe box release model, because you can dedicate the entire deluxe more or less to one faction. And I'm just remembering as well that L5R had that model of releasing different deluxes that were basically one faction focused. And that didn't seem to go down particularly well, just from what little I saw about it. Because it meant if you were a crab player and crab was due to be the last of the seven to get a deluxe box... You've got three and a half years, broadly speaking, to wait until you get your faction-specific box because they didn't release them simultaneously. They were doing one at a time. The The risk with doing a single box of, like, this is the sixth faction is all the people who are like, but what about the other five factions? What if I'm not interested in that one faction? Why yeah. would I want to buy this? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I think you could potentially argue the multi-class cards are a way of doing that in Arkham. That, mm. that, that doesn't do that. The, the, the real problem you've got, as, as we've talked about in the past, so if I jump back to Netrunner for a second, mm-hmm. Netrunner has a deck-building resource called Influence, which allows you to bring in cards from other factions. Every card mm. has an influence value. You don't have to spend any influence on in-faction cards, but you do on out-of-faction cards. And yeah. the more established that card is in a particular faction the more influence it costs mm-hmm. so at the top level you might only get three cards of a very high influence level in your deck if that yeah so a, a play set of cards in arkham the individual characters have far more flavor in terms of their deck building 
Mm-hmm. So in, in Netrunner, you could pick up any deck for a faction and drop it into another deck for that, into another character for that faction, and it would still work. You could still have that same deck. If, I assume you've got the same allowance of influence. Yeah. In Arkham, you can't do that because the, the deck building is at the character level rather than at the faction level. Yeah. So you can't pick up a Skids deck and drop it into Finn, two investigators we talked about earlier, because they have access to a different pool of cards. Yeah. The issue comes when you then want to, if you do want to drop in another faction in Netrunner, you have a system that works with that. So any investigator can take, uh, sorry, any runner can take any card. So even back the way, you know, that investigator, God damn it, <laughs> runners in the core set could take cards from the mini factions that came out years later. Mm. In Arkham, you can't retroactively go back and update the deck building instructions for every single investigator who's already come out to include a new yeah. faction. I mean, you could, but it'd be... five odd investigators in- who... Incredibly messy to do that. Yeah, yeah. So either you're giving them all access yeah. in some way, or you're saying all of these 45 don't interact with the sixth class, but from now on, they will. They might do, yeah. Yeah. Which... Uh, but- that's not none yeah. of those. It's it's not impossible, but none of those approaches seem particularly neat. So yeah. I would say they would probably stick to. You could do a, a kind of a sub faction of cards for a particular investigator. It might sound them. I don't know. Like it, it, it limits it unless it's in a particular deck or something like that. You could yeah. do that. What What about if you did? Um, if you did a, a investigator expansion, it's the new faction. All five investigators are of that faction, but they're all the five-two split. So there's one that's new faction and then level two guardian. There's another new faction, level two seeker, new faction, level two rogue. And that's all you're going to get for the new faction. You'll get a bunch of cards from that and a smattering of cards from the other five factions. That's, to me, the kind of neatest way. But the, the sticking point for me is that that class has to be interesting enough to justify and you're always going to be limited to only five investigators that can run that class because every other class can't yeah unless yeah. suddenly you start running versatile or um, do you release maybe you release a suite of five permanents guardian seeker rogue mystic and survivor that a little bit like the permanents of edge of the earth i say something like your deck building rules change to include faction six levels one to two insert downside that's a kind of neater way than (laughs) releasing an faq that says we're changing the following investigators deck building that's all well and good but we haven't actually come up with what the sixth class would be yeah that's i mean that's fine what about if it was a rather than like we said about profession rather than it being the faction itself what if it was like an order of um a bit like the prologue investigators, what if it was like a team of people, an order of warrior monks, a bit like Lily, or like a team of investigators, a group of people that were stranded somewhere and they've turned up back in civilization. With all of these things, you can add, oh, they're survivors, oh, they're guardians, but almost like that they're uni- what unifies them is the fact that the five of them have all been through the same experience rather than that they have a kind of belonging to a faction. Am I getting you excited here or no? I don't know. <laughs> okay, fine, we'll leave it there. If, if Dice is smart, he can do it. <laughs> well, I'm hoping that behind his question, there's a class he'd like. You know, you t- you told me off air about this TV programme you've been watching in which oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. a group crash and sort of survive the woods and they're bonded like that. What if, what if the investigators that was the thing that, that they shared, that they'd been through an experience of surviving in the woods for X number of years. So you'd have, like, the woodsman, the, I don't know, the hunter, the something else, the something else, and that was that was what linked them. Yeah, a group of people who've survived. Yeah, so yeah. a bit like uh, <laughs> the partner assets in Edge of Earth. <laughs> yeah, Yes, but rather than just surviving generally, like having gone through uh, a specific survival experience together anyway well that's all we've got time for i was sorry can i add just one last thing yeah 
I think I started saying this, but I, in my view, you would use the multi-class and the neutral factions on cards to, to kind of if if you were going to do something drastic like this, we might we'd probably see another neutral investigator or potentially some kind of multi-class mm-hmm. shenanigans. Mm-hmm. I think that's the kind of version of a new class for Arkham Horror. Because mm-hmm. it, it it's it it's the only way I can see it fitting in with the established card pool and this, the, the the investigators that have come out so far. Mm. But if if you were to force me to pick a section of the the of section of gameplay which hasn't been covered by the the established classes, it would be some kind of social class, not a social class. <laughs> Uh, but a class that did social. We things. need more middle class investigators. <laughs> I feel underrepresented by this game, <laughs> and that that links back to that person who's designed their own class and what that social class can do in terms of the game. Yeah, and one of the things they were using that social ability to do was essentially to evade enemies. And for me, the point is that certain factions just are not very good at evading because that's not what they're good at doing and other factions are very good at evading so adding a lot of cards that sort of allow you to use intellect to evade doesn't actually fix a problem it's actually a design feature rather than a flaw Maxine has said seekers are meant to be not good at dealing with enemies but maybe chatterboxes would be good at dealing with enemies who knows Cool, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, patrons, for your questions. If you're not a patron and you'd like to become a patron, you can go to patreon.com forward slash drawn to the flame. Patronage starts at the very low rate of $2 a month, and we have a wonderful Discord where you can come and chat about these things. And if you take out a patronage at a higher tier, you can send us questions to answer in the mailbag. So thank you so much for those. Peter, how can people get in touch with you? I am United everywhere. I'm on Twitter and Discord and Steam and Instagram as d.unitled. So yeah, please say hello. How about you, Frank? I'm FB on Twitter. That's E-P-H underscore B-E-E or F-E-B or Zooey Glass or Zozo. But also if you're a patron and you have an amazing idea that you want to send in to us, you can also email us with drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com. So if you have some grand idea for an episode that we really should do or just some some questions that you think are bigger than just a single question, send them in. We'd love to see them. We love the emails we get. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. My name is Nicholas Smith Peasley, and those who recall the newspaper tales of a generation back, or the letters and articles in psychological journals six or seven years ago, will know who and what I am. The press was filled with the details of my strange amnesia in 1908-1913, and much was made of the traditions of horror, madness, and witchcraft which lurked beyond the ancient Croydon town, then and now forming my place of residence. I've changed Massachusetts to Croydon. I did wonder about that. (laughs) As they passed Michael Stenberg's place, they told him what queer things the specimen had done, and how it had faded wholly away when they put it in a glass beaker. The beaker had gone too, and the wise men talked of the strange stone's affinity for silicon. It had acted quite unbelievably in that well-ordered laboratory. (laughs) 